Welcome to Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. This is your reverend host, Mark Braun, here. Glad you could join us here. So, let me remind you, you're listening to a recording provided for the use of those who are blind and print impaired. Materials or items read in Ayers, LA, are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. No siree. Let's get into it. We've got uh, this one from the World Section of the Los Angeles Times for Sunday, August 20. Yep, 20th, 2023, Russian Attack Kills Seven, Zelensky in Sweden, by Efrem Lutaski, Chernev, Ukraine. A Russian missile attack in the center of a northern Ukrainian city on Saturday killed seven people and wounded more than a hundred others, including children, Ukrainian officials said. The attack in Chernev uh, happened as Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky arrived in Sweden on his first foreign trip since attending a North, Ad- North Atlantic Treaty Organization summit in Lithuania last month. Images of the aftermath show badly damaged buildings, including a theater with its roof blown away, mangled cars, and survivors in bloodstained clothes walking amid the debris. The dead in the daytime strike included a six-year-old girl, while 15 children were among the 129 wounded. Ukrainian Interior Minister Ihor Klemenko said. The square in front of the theater had been bustling with life, with people returning from church after celebrating the Apple Feast of the Savior religious holiday, baskets of consecrated apples in hand, Klemenko said. After the strike, debris from the theater roof uh, littered the square, along with shattered glass from the windows of nearby cars and restaurants. The theater was struck during a gathering of drone manufacturers and aerial reconnaissance training schools, organizer Marlia Berlinska confirmed. Berlinska said that agreement on the event was reached in advance with both the local authorities and the venue. The Chernev City Council denied that they had approved the event or issued any permits. Zelensky said that the attack showed Russia, which invaded Ukraine early last year, was a terrorist state and that the world must unite against it. A Russian missile hit right in the center of the city in our Chernihiv, he wrote in a messaging app telegram. A square, the Polytechnic University uh, Theater, an ordinary Saturday, which Russia turned into a day of pain and loss. Chernihiv was surrounded by Russian forces at the start of the war, but they withdrew after Ukrainian forces retook control of areas north of Kiev in April last year. Zelensky arrived in Sweden on an unannounced visit Saturday, his first to the Scandinavian countries since the start of the full-scale invasion. The war prompted Sweden to abandon its long-standing policy of military non-alignment to support Ukraine with weapons and apply for North Atlantic Treaty Organization membership, though it is still waiting to join the alliance. At a joint news conference, Zelensky and Swedish Prime Minister Ulf Kristersson announced that uh, the two countries had agreed to cooperate on the production, uh, training, and servicing of Sweden CV-90 infantry fighting vehicles. Zelensky said Ukraine would start manufacturing the vehicles as part of a deal. He also encouraged Christensen to share Sweden's Gri- uh, Gripen fighter aircraft. We do not have superiority in the air, and we do not have modern aircraft. In reality, the Swedish Gripen is the pride of your country, And I believe that the prime minister should share this pride with Ukraine, Zelensky said. Sweden has said it will allow Ukrainian pilots to test the Gripen planes, 
but has so far ruled out giving any to Kiev. Zelensky said appropriate actions would be taken in coming weeks to help Ukraine obtain appropriate aircraft. I will also have negotiations with several other states tomorrow and the day after tomorrow. I am confident that we, together with our partners, will do everything and achieve the appropriate results in the sky so that the Russians do not have an advantage there, he said. Denmark and the Netherlands said Friday that the United States had given its approval for the countries to deliver U.S.-made F-16 fighter jets to Ukraine. Sweden says it has provided $1.85 billion in military support to Ukraine, including Archer artillery units, Leopard 2 tanks, and CV-90 armored vehicles. Zelensky met with Christensen and other Swedish officials at Harpsen, the Prime Minister's official summertime residence about 60 miles west of Stockholm. He and First Lady Olena Zelenska later met Sweden's King Carl XVI, Gustav, and Queen Sylvia at a palace in the area. Christensen expressed his condolences to Zelensky for the attack in Chernihiv. He called the Russian missile strike an act of brutality and that only reinforces the need for us to stand with you in all your struggles. In Russia, President Vladimir Putin visited top military officials in the city of Rostov-on-Don near the Ukrainian border. The Kremlin said that Putin listened to reports from Valery Gerasimov, the commander in charge of Moscow's operations in Ukraine and other top military brass at the headquarters of Russia's southern military district. The exact timing of his visit was not confirmed, but state media published video that appeared to be taken at night showing Gerasimov greeting Putin and leading him into a building. The meeting was held behind closed doors. It was Putin's first visit to Rostov-on-Don since the Wagner mercenary groups attempted mutiny in June when the group briefly took control of the city. During June's short-lived revolt, Wagner leader uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin repeatedly denounced Gerasimov, who serves as chief of the general staff of the Russian army forces, and Defense Minister Sergei Shoigu for denying supplies to his fighters in Ukraine. Prigozhin claimed that the uprising was not aimed at Putin, <clears throat> but at removing Gerasimov and other top brass whom he accused of mismanaging the war. Kiev last week claimed counteroffensive gains from the southeastern front, regaining control of the village of Orozhen in Ukraine's eastern Donetsk region on Wednesday. The leader of the Russian battalion fighting to maintain control of Orozhen called for freezing the front on Thursday, saying his troops cannot win against Ukraine. Can we bring down Ukraine militarily? Now in the near future, no, Alexander Kodajovsky said in a video posted to Telegram. Overnight into Saturday, Ukraine's Air Force said it shot down 15 of 17 Russian drones targeting northern, central, and western regions. The deputy governor of the western Kemalzinsky region, Serhii Turian, said two people were wounded and dozens of buildings damaged in an attack. In the Zatomir region, Russian drones targeted an infrastructure facility and caused a fire, but no casualties reported, an official said. There was Russian attack kills 7, Zelensky in Sweden, by Efrem Lukatsky, from the World Section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, August 20, 2023.
Lukatsky writes for the Associated Press. AP writer Carl Ritter in Stockholm contributed to this report. All right, let's go into a little entertainment news. Two movie reviews here from the Los Angeles Times calendar section, Wednesday, August 23rd, 2023. It can be a fun ride if you don't look under the hood by Katie Walsh. The exterior, visual exterior of Neil Blomkamp's video game adaptation, Gran Turismo, mimics that of a race car itself, shiny, colorful chrome. There's a real surface appeal to this movie, which is based on the remarkable true story of Jan Mardenborough, an English gamer and fan of the Gran Turismo driving simulator, billed here as the most accurate, who won a Nissan-sponsored driving academy and has since gone on to become a successful race car driver himself on real tracks, not visual ones, virtual ones. But pop the hood on this bad boy, and there's an undeniable cynicism under undergirding this vehicle. A movie about a publicity stunt is still just a publicity stunt. If you start pulling apart this rousing, if formulaic sports flick, it'll come undone. One may even question the worthiness of gas-guzzling motorsports uh, motor and why we'd celebrate them on screen. Gran Turismo does attempt to get ahead of the craven capitalism on display with Orlando Bloom's knowing portrayal of Nissan marketing exec Danny Moore, a version of DT Academy founder Darren Cox. Bloom and the script by Jason Hall, Zach Balin, and Alex Z positions Danny as a savvy but smarmy innovator with visions <clears throat> of untapped demographics. He flashes a sharky grin at Nissan execs while describing the gamers in whom Gran Turismo has ignited a passion for driving. He cooks up the scheme for the gamer to race or driving academy, and though winning is winning, he still wants the most camera-ready driver behind the wheel of the first Nissan Motorsports vehicle, even if he isn't quite ready for, an, for the track. Danny is a bit of an antagonist, allowing the audience to scoff at his business-oriented motivation while also knowing that this film is meant to be an advertisement for the Gran Turismo game and Nissan cars. The fastest driver in the academy is a tall, quiet kid from Cardiff, Wales, the son of a former footballer searching for his purpose in life. Archie Mad Madakwe plays determined driver enthusiast Jan with a shiny charm and if Gran Turismo works, it's due to Madakwe's performance, as well as the gruff and grounded presence of David Harbour as Jack Salter, a former race car driver and engineer tapped to train the gamers. As a piece of purely mechanical, revved-up entertainment, Gran Turismo works. Audience members will raise their hands with full-throated cheers every time Yana inches up in the rankings, such as the appeal of Madakwe's Medequay's earnest performance. Blumkamp, District 9, lays out the stakes with simple but effective visual storytelling. He utilizes a saturated color palette to allow us to easily locate Jan and his foes in the race, while putting game iconography and graphics to work to illustrate how Jan sees the track, thanks to his hours of, on the stimulator. The script is standard sports movie fare without much subtext. In the mouth of anyone other than Harbour, some of these motivational lines would be real clangers, but he sells the material with his rugged soulfulness, and there's true chemistry between him and Madakwe as the unlikely sports star and his demanding coach. Damon Honsau plays Jan's father, 
and it's a great emotional role for the actor as the dad who doesn't understand his son's dream. And yet, that is Jerry Halliwell Horner, a.k.a. Ginger Spice, playing Jan's mother. Fun fact, the real Martin Burrow also serves as his character's driving double in the film. Gran Turismo bears comparison to the other recent racing film, Ford v. Ferrari. And that's just because both films feature their climaxes after 24 hours of Le Mans race. Both films are stories of personal determination, individual achievement, and overcoming obstacles, but are inextricably linked to the desire to sell more cars. These inspiring tales have capitalist ends and origins, but then again, that's the business of motorsports, already saturated with sponsorships, product placement, and advertising. The writers of Gran Turismo don't attempt to interrogate the, uh, the business, and why would they? In the end, as entertaining, entertaining as the movie is, it feels like a custom wrap on a sports car and adds stuck onto Martin Burrow's unique journey to the track. That was It Can Be a Fun Ride If You Don't Look Under the Hood by Katie Walsh from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, August 23rd, 2023. Katie Walsh is a Tribune News Service film critic. The name of the film is Gran Turismo, rated PG-13 for, for intense action and some strong language, running time 2 hours 15 minutes. It is now playing in wide release. All right, here is another movie review. From the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times for Friday, August 25th, 2023, Helen Mirren is brilliant as Golda Meir, but the ambitious war room drama does not rise above being an actress showcase by Justin Chang, film critic. The first time you see Helen Mirren as Isra the Israeli Prime Minister Golda Meir, she comes at you in stern little fragments, a puckered mouth taking a long, slow drag on a cigarette, one of many, then the back of a head, the hair pulled back in a severe bun. Golda, a title card, declares over a close-up of two thick browed eyes. It's like watching an illusion come together slowly, piece by piece, in a movie that all but dares you to see the great actor hidden beneath the meticulously applied wrinkles. The last time Mirren played a world leader on the big screen, in the in the Queen, she reminded us that heavy lies in the heady in heavy that heavy lies the head that wears the crown. In Golda, apparently no less heavy lies the head that wears layers upon layers of prosthetic pancake. Directed by the Israeli American filmmaker Guy Nativ Skin, from a script by the English screenwriter Nicholas Martin, Florence Foster Jenkins, Golda purports to track the bloody events of October 1973, when Egyptian and Syrian forces armed with Soviet-supplied weapons mounted a surprise attack on Israel on the holiest day of its calendar. Through the, this harrowing 18-day conflict, known as the Yom Kippur War, the move also seeks to eliminate the indomitable spirit of a leader who steered her young nation imperfectly but with great courage through failures of intelligence crises of political conscience, and thousands of military casualties. Really, though, Golda isn't about any of these things. It's much more about Mirren's anxious but determined uh, gait as her Golda enters a room full of distracted male colleagues or strides across a Tel Aviv rooftop to be alone with her thoughts and have another smoke. It's all about the vividly cinematic ways she can wield a cigarette as both a signifier of defiance, she's dying of, ca of, of 
She's dying slowly of cancer and an emblem of personal style. It's about all the external details, those fleeting but eminently exploitable points of contact between Mirren's brilliance as a performer and Meyer's brilliance as a leader. Golda feeds that time-honored tradition of watching a virtuoso screen performer vanish behind a famous name and a wall as cinematic artifice. Ori as it can be, the practice still uh, reliably uh, wows audiences and awards voters as recent-ish Oscar winners like Jessica Chastain, Renee Zellweger, Rami Malek, and Gary Oldman can attest. Lately, though, the tradition has also taken on some critical and culturally specific baggage, some of it tied to the forthcoming much-buzzed biopic Maestro, in which a non-Jewish actor, Bradley Cooper, dons a fake schnoz to play a Jewish celebrity, Leonard Bernstein. Golda, arriving with far less fanfare in theaters this week, has been caught up in a quieter version of the same controversy. They should only they the, the should only Jews play Jews debate won't be revived here, much less resolved. Suffice to say that if this artifice, then it if this is artifice, then it is artifice of a very high caliber. As a sickly septuagenarian Meyer, Mirren packs fierce authority, grandmotherly warmth, touching uncertainty, and wry resignation into an uncharacteristically stooped and heavily padded frame. She also suggests with her distinctly American intonations a hint of Golda's hard-scrabble Milwaukee upbringing. Her performance, far from being the movie's greatest drawback, is the best and perhaps the only interesting thing about it. The more glaring problem is that Golda itself never rises above the level of an actor's showcase never achieves, despite some notable effort, a more complicated, challenging reading of history. An expository prologue doesn't inspire confidence, moving from Israel's founding in 1948 to its triumph over its Arab neighbors in the Six-Day War of 1967. It plows through roughly two decades of tumultuous history with all the verb of an award show highlights reel. Equally perfunctory, is a framing device set in January 1974 as unsmiling members of the Iraq <clears throat> Agronaut Commission grill Meyer about the intelligence failures that precipitated the surprise Yom Kippur attack months earlier. The movie's account of those failures, but also the failure of Egypt and Syria, which sees but cannot maintain the upper hand, is appreciably absorbing, even if the war itself wagged on too waged on two fronts on the Sinai Peninsula and in the Golan Heights, is kept largely hidden from view. It thus fails to the swift, fluid movements of Jasper Wolf's camera and the suspenseful thrum of Dasha Dunhauer's score to bring this rickety war room procedural to life. The tension is heightened by the steady clacking of typewriter keys and from time to time the soldier's screams we hear being transmitted from the battlefront. Screams that lodge indelibly in Meyer's memory and give the life and death stakes an insistently human voice. Her concern for her people could scarcely be more palpable. Watch how Mirren softens Golda's face and posture in the presence of her secretary, whose ill-fated soldier's son becomes a convenient stand-in for thousands of other young men in the front lines. But her natural empathy turns out to be the flip side of her utter ruthlessness as a tactician and negotiator. 
You see that mix of vulnerability and steel at play as Golda submits to a lymphoma treatments, furiously chain-smoking through every one. You also see it in her compassionate yet highly strategic dealings with her closest colleagues, played by actors including Lior Ashkenazi, Devar ben Benedek, and Rami Huberger, whose occasional lapses of judgment and failures of nerve provide ample opportunity for Golda to step in and do what she can to redeem an impossible situation. She can only do so much, of course, since she, like the state she governs, operates at the behest of bigger, more powerful geopolitical entities. Morton's script acknowledges the fragile, condi conditional nature of Israel's alliance with the U.S., especially given the latter's uh, newest reliance on Middle East oil imports. That gives rise to a few juicily entertaining scenes involving U.S. Secretary of State Henry Kissinger, our guarded Leif Schreiber, who emerges as Meyer's most significant ally and sparring partner. She is never more fully at the peak of her negotiating powers than, with Kiss than when Kissinger briefly passes through Tel Aviv, where she forces him to consume a bowl of borscht and offer Israel some badly needed reinforcements. Given the deliberate narrowness of the movie's pr perspective, it makes sense that Kissinger should be presented solely in terms of his significance to Israel. But if the more troubling aspects of his own legacy are left pointedly off-screen, so is a deeper longing view of the Arab-Israeli conflict, the hard lessons of the Yom Kippur War, and the anguish that Israel would both endure and inflict in the decades to follow. The movie opens with an on-screen acknowledgement of Israel's 1967-fueled hubris, a provocative notion that is left to linger and finally fade away at roughly the same moment Golda does. The morally ambiguous fog of war that this movie seems so intent on conjuring and peering into ultimately dissipates like cigarette smoke. That was Helen Mirren is Brilliant as Golda Meir by Justin Chang, film critic from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, August 25th, 2023. It's called Golda in English, Hebrew, and Arabic with English subtitles. Rating PG-13 for thematic material and pervasive smoking. Running time, 1 hour, 40 minutes. Playing in general release. Right now, let's move on to a story from the envelope section of the Los Angeles Times for August 17th, 2023. Uh, this is called Ken Burns Calls Out the Nation for a Grizzly Failure. The U.S. and the Holocaust shames the country for a lack of action while forgiving FDR's role, explaining it as nuanced by Robert Abel. Documentarian Ken Burns says he could be given a thousand years to live and he'd never run out of topics to examine in American history. But the Emmy-nominated The U.S. and the Holocaust, directed with Lynn Novick and Sarah Botstein, an unflinching three-part exploration of how America responded during that horrific time, Burns says, I won't work on a more important film. After their The War about, the, about World War II and the Roosevelts, an intimate history inspired a need for a clarification as to what Americans thought, did, and didn't do about the Holocaust. The trio opted for a deep dive follow-up that would parallel the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum's similarly-themed exhibition. 
What Burns, Novick, and Botstein soon realized, though, was that a sweeping, freshly researched retelling of the persecution of American Jews would be just as essential to their ever-lengthening film as detailing the xenophobia, racism, and political decisions that made American inaction toward refugees so tragically consequential. I thought I knew a fair amount about about the history, said Novak, who also co-produced. But the more we dug into it, the more we realized we didn't know that much. And we learned the parallels and complexities of what was going on in Europe versus what's going on here. Botstein, a longtime Burns Novak producer, earned her first directing credit for the U.S. and the Holocaust, remembers trepidation at revisiting the Holocaust as a documentary subject until the film revealed itself as eerily resonant with today's anti-immigration climate, and how a widely civilized democracy can crumble very easily, she says. I think it morphs into a film about immigration refugee policy. The Holocaust is a devastating, hugely important way to think about that. Burns cites two factual parallels as guiding the film's historical narrative. There's the pervasive anti-Semitism of the country, he says, Henry Ford thinks Jews were responsible for the death of Abraham Lincoln. The fact that a majority of Americans didn't want to let anybody in, even after they saw the movies at the end of the War of the Gas Chambers. That hurt me deeply. Where was our soul, our conscience? The other recalls the metronomic terror of the Holocaust. Burns says the off-sided descriptor, six million, has no meaning anymore. That conveying, that conveying the size and scope of the killing necessitated particularizing it. Family stories told by survivors, where some make it to other countries, but most don't. You say, two out of every three died, or you look at a newsreel of an attractive young Jewish woman looking out a window, or parents joining her for a second, and then you realize two of those people are gone, says Burns. What was the lost poten potentiality? What symphonies weren't written? What cures weren't found? What children weren't raised with love? Even Anne Frank's father, Otto, couldn't get his family into America. Another one of the film's eye-opening revelations. Otto was well-to-do. Well he had contacts in the United States. He wasn't going to be a burden on the state, Burns says. And he still couldn't get in. She could be alive today. It was also crucial for the filmmakers to portray Franklin D. Roosevelt's role in the country's turning away of refugees as more nuanced and look at the big picture of rising isolationism, the Depression's wake, and a stinging Congress about the humanitarian crisis. It's incredibly complicated, Botstein says. He's a political being. It's definitely not anyone's best moment, uh, but to widely dismiss him makes no sense either. Burns says holding Roosevelt's feet to the fire ultimately led to an admiration of his real politic that staying in power, not, to, not doing things he believed in, eventually made a difference. You go back and forth on him, but in episode 3, when he gives approval to the War Refugee Board, the greatest organization for saving human beings in the entire history of the Second World War, that's not a bad thing. A brain trust as storied and thoughtful as the burns Novik botstein team has long been an asset in today's documentary landscape. But production on the U.S. and the Holocaust became stressful when Burns, observing the anti-democratic swerve in America during the chaos surrounding the 2020 election and the January 6th insurrection, 
felt the film should be finished one year earlier than scheduled. PBS premiered it last fall. We need to get this out, Burns said, citing Mark Twain's observation that history may not repeat itself, but it often rhymes. When we began this in 2015, it was a different United States. But it needed to be part of a national conversation about authoritarianism and these painful rhymes in history. On that, on top of that, all three filmmakers agree it's a disturbing time to be unearthing past wrongs in the effort to forge a better future, when of late, the very teaching of accurate history itself is being attacked. Jefferson said we're disposed to suffer evils while evils are sufferable, so this is going to take extra effort, Burns said. And it seems we have obstacles set before us now. People saying, don't worry about slavery. Don't worry, we'll make your trains run on time. And that's the road to authoritarianism. That's why a vigorous, open, debated, suffered, joyful history is our birthright. Novick says the response to their film across the political spectrum has been reassuring. But she stresses, we're not going to put our thumb on the scales, as Ken always says. We're going to try to understand what happened. These are uncomfortable truths, and we have to face them. And if you don't think people should know this, all the more reason why we're going to make sure people do. That was Ken Burns Calls Out the Nation for a Grizzly Failure by Robert Abel from the Envelope section of the Los Angeles Times for August 17, 2023. Now we're going to go on to some articles from Jay Living's, Jay Living's Celebration Issues 2023. And uh, this one is called uh, Creating Community and Connection. Mentions Jeremy and Ilana Hamburg by Deborah Eckerling. Southern California-based Jeremy and Ilana Hamburg are dedicated to helping neurodiverse adults develop the skills to find friendship, community, and love. Jeremy Hamburg, founder of My Best Social Life, has been coaching autistic and neurodivergent adults since 2010. Ilana Hamburg, the director of education, joined last year after being a special education teacher in New York City, the New York City public school system for 16 years. The couple who met at a wedding back in back east in 2020 started dating long distance during COVID. They got married on Memorial Day. The mission of My Best Social Life is to help wonderful people with different brain wiring find their find the community and connection they want and deserve. Jeremy, question. Jeremy, what led to you to create My Best Social Life? Jeremy, when I lived in New York, I co-founded a 20s, 30s organization at B'nai Jeshuram Synagogue in New York City. Our Shabbat dinners would have 150 young professionals. Most of them were there because they were single and wanted to find someone Jewish, and I watched a lot of them swing and miss. At one point, two friends I had made through uh, the gap asked me to coach them, and that led me to three years of reading about the science of what makes two people attract. What I discovered in all these science books neatly lined up with what I was learning at a young New York as a young New York City prosecutor. That projecting confidence, asking good questions, telling good stories, and being a good listener are four of the most important things you can do to be magnetic. So now when people tell me what a drastic change it is from to go from being a lawyer to an autism and neurodivergent friendship and dating coach, I just tell them that there isn't much difference between winning over a jury of twelve in a courtroom and a jury of one in a social setting. 
around 2010, I started doing innovative dating workshops for the JCC in Manhattan, and they were so popular that I was invited back again and again. What I didn't realize was that many of the people coming to my workshops were autistic and neurodivergent, and that's because I also didn't realize that the JCC had three special needs organizations operating under its roof. Pretty soon, they started asking me to do workshops directly for their members. With the help of its director, Allison Kleinman, I ended up staying with the adoptions program at the Silver Center for Special Needs for more than three years. I learned a ton from the adapt, uh, ad adaptations attendees, probably more than they learned from me at the time. And I used that knowledge to launch MyBestSocialLife.com. Question, Ilana, when, what? Did you, what led you to work with My Best Social Life? Ilana, when I started dating Jeremy, all he talked about was his clients and new ways to help them be socially successful. He asked me if I wanted to join one of his program's weekly community calls. Basically, all the clients in the program and many of their parents joined a Wednesday evening Zoom call where they shared their victories, asked questions, and get coached. I've never seen a more inspiring group of young adults. Leaving New York City was a tough decision. I spent 16 years as a special education teacher in the New York City public school system. But I was excited to start my new life with Jeremy, and he asked me to be my best social life's director of education. And we came to an agreement. I'd be the director of education for one year, and if I didn't like it, I'd go back to the classroom. Let's just say I don't see myself going back to the classroom. Question. Who serves, and how do you help what... Uh, what is the process? Jeremy, our clients are autistic or neurodivergent adults who are lonely and want to find community, friendships, and maybe even romantic partners. Our youngest clients are around 18. Our oldest are in their, their 60s, but the vast majority of our clients are in their 20s and 30s. I looked at all the social skills coaching that was happening in the autism world, and it wasn't really making, uh, the, and it really wasn't moving the needle for people, at least not on a very big scale. I wanted to innovate in a meaningful way, and over time, that became Social Life 360. Here are a few things about the program that are really innovative. First, we give our clients a vibrant online community from uh, the minute they join the program. We have a worldwide chat group of our clients and graduates who are just active pretty much all day. We also have smaller regional chat groups so that our clients can share ideas and make plans to get together with each other. And there's also a chat group for the parents because it's nice to know that there are others who have been on a similar journey as you. Second, we teach our clients the A to Z of building community, making friends, and starting to date. And we teach a little bit of strategy and every skill day so, uh, so that what they're learning builds upon itself slowly but steadily. Third, we teach the skills and strategies through a combination of training modules, group training, individual coaching, and wraparound support. So the lessons they're learning are reinforced over and over again. Finally, most importantly, we're teaching the skills and strategies in a way that's easier for their brains to digest. The autistic and neurodivergent brain tends to love patterns, formulas, and processes, so we decode the social world for our clients and we recode it for them in a way that makes it easier for them to understand the world around them and then be a participant in it. Question, how has philanthropy enriched your life? Jeremy, Ilana and I 
are both par both have parents who are very active in their Jewish community and who do a lot of charitable within it. They're really been, been a role model role models for us, and we started to become much more active in the Beth Jacob community here in Irvine, California. But we have some pretty big plans, and philanthropy is involved. Inspired by our good friends Aliza Ben Shalom, star of Netflix's Jewish Matchmaking, and the Love Rabbi Yisrael Bernat, we are spinning our up our flagship Social Life 360 program for the more religious Jewish community. The working title for the soon-to-be-launched program is from Schmoozing to Seduk, JewishSocialCoaching.com, because life is better you're able to be part of the fabric of a community and find love too. The program will have a tuition, but here's what where the philanthropic part comes in. We are going to be, create a, a, be creating a nonprofit to spread our message that autism and neurodivergence doesn't need to be mean loneliness, that also and also to offer scholarships for autistic and neurodivergent, neurodivergent adults who want to be part of our program but otherwise couldn't afford to. We don't know very much about fundraising yet, but we're absolutely dedicated to expanding the impact we have on people with autism and neurodivergence with a big focus on the Jewish world. We know that traveling around the country and the world teaching communi communities best practices or connecting with autistic and neurodivergent adults and teaching autistic and neurodivergent adults best practices for uh, being more social is going to have huge impacts on people's lives. Separate from that, Rabbi Bernat, Elisa, Ilana, and I formed an organization called the International Matchmaking University, for whose goals are to bring the matchmaking community closer together and train them on best practices so that they can be as impactful as possible. So far, IMU has, has led really inspiring trainings in Montreal and Jerusalem, and we look forward to bringing it to the United States and elsewhere. Question. What was, when was the first time you participated in Sadaka? Can you share your first significant donation, whether it was by donating your time or financially? Uh, uh, Jeremy. My mom's parents always had a pushka in their home, and that, that's something that uh, always stuck with me. I also went to Kinneret Hebrew Day School, where giving tzedakah was a big part of our education. So I can remember the first time that I gave tzedakah, and it's something that I focus on with my kids, so I doubt they'll be able to remember the first time giving tzedakah either. One of the most significant donations I ever made was to my synagogue, B'nai Jeshurun. The Sioux wanted to repurchase the community house that, that it was forced to sell off years earlier. I was a very big believer in what BJ was doing, and I was very active in on its communities, so I donated an entire paycheck to the effort to buy the community house. Mind you, I wasn't making very much back then. My salary as a young prosecutor wasn't much more than $50,000 at the time, but giving an entire paycheck to an organization that meant so much to me was a truly wonderful feeling. Question, what are simple ways anyone can give back or participate in tikkun olam? Jeremy, our rabbi Yisrael Siner, C-I-N-E-R, of Beth Jacob in Irvine, was kind enough to uh, give me a divar for parashat Yitro. What I said at our shul is what Ilana and I tell everyone who listens. People with autism and neurodivergent brains are some of the smartest, kindest, most loyal, most honest, and most wonderful human beings on the planet. 
and they have so much light and love to give this world. But their brain wiring can make it hard for them to socialize, so they often find themselves feeling like outsiders. One of the biggest acts of tikkun olam that you can do is to help even one autistic or neurodivergent person in your community feel like he or she belongs. Whether that's asking them to sit next to you at shul or inviting them for Shabbat dinner or even just asking them how they're doing. Helping an autistic or neurodivergent person feel like they're a valued part of the community can absolutely change their life and yours. Question. Who inspires you? Ilana. The easy answer is that our families inspire us. And they do. We both have amazing parents who rose uh, to the top of their professions. One lawyer, one doctor, one physical therapist, and one occupational therapist. and, And did it with kindness and compassion. We also have amazing siblings who have followed our parents' uh, parents' footsteps. But you don't want us to take uh, the easy way out. So I'll tell you that the two people who inspire us day in and day out are Rabbi Bernath and Eliza. When we're together, we literally stay up all night. We're just an idea factory when we're together, and even one of those ideas is aimed at making the Jewish world and the broader world a better place. Question. What is your favorite Jewish meal? Jeremy, chicken soup with matzah balls, crispy chicken, and simmez. It reminds me of my grandmother's and all the meals we shared together. My mom makes a pretty darn good version of the crispy chicken, and Ilana makes a delicious matzah ball soup, so I'm pretty lucky. Ilana, matzah ball soup, and pastrami on a roll. Question. Anything you want to add? Jeremy. Ilana and I are always looking for new ways to impact the social lives of autistic and neurodivergent adults. If there's a person or an organization for whom this is a passion, we want to meet them. Email us at jeremy at mybestsociallife.com. That was Creating Community and Connection by Deborah Eckerling. This was from the Mensch section. Now here's something from the Destination section. This is called Cook Like an Israeli. Learn how to cook at the Shuk. And the author is apparently unknown. On almost every street corner in Israel, you can find a falafel, golden fried balls of chicken peas that no matter how good they are in the States, are never as good as the ones from Israel. If you had a tour guide on your trip to Israel, I'm sure they took you uh, to their favorite falafel location. Or as our guide would qualify, the greatest falafel west of Jerusalem are the best falafel you can get in the north. As a tourist, they were all delicious. A few years ago, after the trip to, uh, a trip to Israel, I attempted to make my own falafel balls using the Trader Joe's mix. Easy to make and tasty, but not surprisingly, it rang hollow to the Israeli version. So when we went back to Israel this year, I was determined to learn the secrets. It was a busy Friday morning when we met up with John with John standing at the entry of the Carmel Market in Tel Aviv. Our family had signed up for John's cooking class and Carmel Market food tour. We joined them. Uh, we joined John and a few fellow travelers and were greeted by his signature's good time hat and his and a self-braided apron. He welcomed us all by giving us a shot glass full of freshly pressed fruits and veggies. If you've never had been to the Shuk before, you must come ready. The Shuk, S-H-U-K, or market, 
is a bustling place where you'll walk shoulder to shoulder with everyone in town. You'll pass spice sellers, t-shirt vendors, uh, produce merchants, and much more, all asking for your business and ready to make a deal. To the newcomer, the market is a step into chaos with a wonderful vibrancy of personalities, colors, and smells. As John led us through the market, he explained the workings behind the market, highlighting how the vendor stalls are managed over generations and how there is still room for new innovations. On one side of an alley, a new rising chef is opening up a small restaurant while a block away, the multi-generations restaurant is serving the Yemenite traditional soup as it has been prepared for decades, if not centuries. Through the tour of the shuck, John introduced us to his favorite spice vendor and produce merchant and produce merchant that had us sample some freshly prepared food treats. As the shuck bombards you with smells and tastes, this curated tour allowed us to traverse it through the a local's eyes while savoring its offerings. As we wandered around the shuck, we were careful to follow John's orders as we purchased fresh produce and spices for the meal that we were going to make. Israeli food consisting of falafels, pita, uh, Israeli salad, hummus, and fried cauliflower. As we finished the tour of the market, John led us to his studio, where he which was just a block or two away from the market. Here, we were able to sit down, have a drink, and begin the cooking lesson that we were all wanting. Sitting around a long wooden table, the nine of us spread out, each of us placed in front of a cutting board with a knife. John had one worker with him who helped deliver the ingredients and made sure that we were all keeping tidy. Over the next 90 minutes, we, uh, we were busy. The only preparation for our meal was, that was done ahead of time was soaking the dried chicken, chickpeas for both the hummus and the falafels. The rest was up to us. As we enjoyed our initial rest, John discussed his culinary background and his wish to pay, play more golf. Explaining the importance of the freshest ingredients, he explained the menu. We were all set on making a meal and had to carefully manage the timing so that the pita bread had time to rise and the cauliflower needed to cook. After starting those recipes, a large bowl of veggies was placed before us. From our purchases earlier, we had red bell peppers, cucumbers, onions, tomatoes, parsley, cilantro, and more. We diced and prepared for the recipes ahead. From one of the kitchen studio from one side of the kitchen studio to the other, each one of us helped grind and form falafels, knead, roll, and cook our pita bread, pestle, and mortar some uh, spices together and assemble the salads and salsas. After a whirlwind of activity, each dish was plated and put onto the main table. Whatever, whatever, when everything was plated, we all stood there amazed at what we had done, or really what John had instructed us to do. First step was taking pictures of our creation, and then it was time to eat. Maybe because we made it, maybe because Joe was a John is a genius, or maybe because it was all true, we had created the best falafel in Israel, at least for that fleeting moment. The true sign was that the room became silent as we all savored the meal and went for seconds. After our lunch, John brought us over to a table he had covered with saran wrap to serve us a wonderful apple dessert. Simply heaven. As we got to the point where we could not take another bite, John summoned us together 
to make sure that all of our questions were answered. He discussed the falafel making tool that we would need and recapped how we prepared every item so that we could repeat this feast without his hands-on guidance. Goodbye, Trader Joe's Mix. I'm going to create the best falafel near the Pacific. And that was Cook Like an Israeli, author unknown from the Destination section. And now we go on to the Sedaka section. This is called Choosing the Right Mitzvah Project. And author is also unknown. While, while one becomes a Jewish adult simply by turning 13, one of the many ways in which we mark this tradition from childhood to the age of mitzvah is to begin to contribute to the community and the world in a more robust way. Your child's mitzvah project is one of the most meaningful things they can do, and it is the beginning of a commitment to tikkun olam. Projects can range from raising or donating monies, volunteering on-site, and or organizing drives to benefit an organization or cause. With so many choices, it is often hard to find the right mitzvah project. Try to start the process by asking your child these questions. What do you really like to do? What are you really good at doing? What bothers you about the world so much that you really want to change it? Hopefully, these questions will narrow down the myriad of options. Once a direction can be determined, it is time to do research. Learn about organiz organizations that work in that arena. Learn about effective and achievable ways to provide assistance and support programs that can make a difference. Finally, let your child make it their own. The Mitzvah Project allows your child to shine and highlight what is important to them. Let them be the force that they are, taking the helm and showcasing their achievements. Below are some mitzvah projects to inspire. Alex's Lemon Stand The mission of Alex's Lemon Stand is to change the lives of children with cancer through funding impactful research, raising awareness, supporting families, and empowering everyone to help cure childhood cancer. Set up your own lemonade stand to raise money for childhood cancers. Alex'sLemonade.org American Jewish Joint Distribution Committee. The JDC Mitzvah Project gives teens the power to make a global difference. The JDC is saving Jewish lives, building Jewish communities, and living Jewish values. JDC.org ETTA ETTA's Mitzvah Project allows students to work directly with teens and adults with special needs. Through teen events and group activities, your child can provide needed support in our community. ETTA.org Food on Foot Food on Foot provides healthy meals, clothing, and essential resources to unhoused and low-income residents in Los Angeles who are in need. Get involved by volunteering at an event, distributing food, or donating gently used clothing to help meet the critical needs of our city's less fortunate. Foodonfoot.org Friends of the Israel Defense Forces Friends of the Israel Defense Forces is dedicated to the mission of providing and supporting social, educational, cultural, and recreational programs and facilities for the young men and women soldiers of Israel. FIDF.org Friendship Circle Los Angeles The Friendship Circle's MVP program, Municipal Volunteer Program, is a four-week orientation course that trains volunteers on how to interact with children who have special needs. 
The program involves interactive activities that offer insights into different disabilities, guidance on appropriate volunteer conduct, and the significance of giving back to the community. Volunteers, volunteers are also made aware of the impact they, have, they can make on others. After completing the four sessions, they will have the opportunity to volunteer at the facility. FCLA.org H-I-A-S Founded as the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society, today H-I-A-S works around the world to protect and assist refugees of all faiths and ethnicities who have been forced to flee their homelands. B'nai Mitzvah projects include assisting with advocacy, distributing pe uh, petitions, letter-writing campaigns, volunteering with, a refugee, with refugee children living in the area, holding a collection drive for needed goals, and more. HIAS.org Israel Guide Dog Center for the Blind The Israel Guide Dog Center offers students an opportunity to raise awareness and sponsor puppies to help the needs of Israel's visually impaired. Through the, mitzvah pro program, through the mitzvah program, students will learn about the needs of people who are visually impaired and the obstacles they must overcome. IsraelGuideDog.org Jewish National Fund The Jewish National Fund aims to secure a prosperous and secure future for the people and the land of Israel. They achieve this by planting trees, constructing houses and parks, finding water solutions, purchasing fire trucks, and enhancing the lives of individuals with special needs. JNF offers various mitzvah project opportunities. JNF.org Lev Lelev Twin your bat mitzvah with an orphan for bat mitzvah girl in Israel. Girls from all over the world work with the girls at Lev Lev to help support them for their celebration. From sponsoring an art class, trip, or even a gala, your support for others will be a true mitzvah. LevLalev.com Mayer Panim Established to help alleviate and diminish the harmful effects of poverty on thousands of men, women, and children across Israel, Project Connect is a great opportunity to connect with a boy or girl in Israel and perhaps help them celebrate their own B'nai Mitzvah. MayerPanim.org Mountain Trust Attend a trail or river cleanup in your backyard dedicated to restoring the degraded, damaged, or destroyed habitats in the Santa Monica Mountains. The Mountain Trust needs your help to protect our, our environment. MountainTrust.org Na'amat Na'amat's Tech 14's Mitzvah project helps teenagers in Israel. The program is specifically designed to provide students with the technology essentials such as computers, printers, software, and other technological resources that are often taken for granted. Naamat.org Project Chicken Soup Provide Nahama comfort to those in need. Volunteers are needed to weekly to provide kosher meals to people in the Los Angeles area who are living with HIV, AIDS, cancer, and other serious illnesses. ProjectChickenSoup.org Remember Us Foundation. Get matched with a child who perished in the Holocaust and learn about ways to remember and honor that child. The Mitzvah program includes training and weekly Zoom meetings. Remember-us.org Shoes for the Homeless Incorporated Shoes for the Homeless is looking for youth ambassadors who want to help the homeless and are willing to make a commitment. Help organize a shoe collection drive 
and learn leadership skills in the process. Shoesforthehomeless.net The Gentle Barn Rescuing animals since 1999, the Gentle Barn located in Santa Clarita is focused on reconnecting animals and people. Come for a cow hug or just to interact with the many animals saved by the Gentle Barn. The animals need your help and they may help you in return. Gentlebarn.org Tree People Now in its 50th year, Tree People is the biggest environmental movement in Southern California. You can volunteer and discover how to make a difference as a force for change, one tree, one street, one community at a time. TreePeople.org That's Choosing the Right Mitzvah Project, author unknown from the Sedaka section. And those are all of the articles from J. Living Celebrations Issue 2023. All right, so now let's go to the L.A. Jewish Home, August 9th through the 23rd, 2023, Volume 1, Number 22, your favorite bi-weekly family read. And we go to some articles from the Around the Community section. We start off with this one, MX General Studies Learning Lab. The Learning Lab is a magical place where every child who crosses its threshold feels successful and valued. It is a place where children go for an hour of power every day, where all children with varying abilities can feel successful and empowered. Built upon the principles of science of reading, the Learning Lab has proven to be an extraordinary success at Emek Hebrew Academy, yielding significant positive outcomes. At the helm of the Learning Lab, Mrs. Gersten, a strong and effective leader, has played a pivotal role in the program's success, ensuring its seamless implementation and fostering a culture of hard work and excellence among struggling students. In her role as literary intervention specialist, she firmly believes that struggling students need to feel capable and confident in their abilities to succeed. I strive to boost their self-esteem by providing personalized small group instruction that addresses their unique needs. By utilizing a joyful and positive approach, Mrs. Gersten creates an engaging learning environment where all students can thrive. I am dedicated to bringing them up to grade level by implementing evidence-based practices rooted in the science of reading. Emek takes great pride in incorporating the learning lab into its current into its curriculum and eagerly anticipates the long achievements it will bring. That was MX General Studies Learning Lab. This next one is called A Time for Dance Performing Arts Camp Presented an Aladdin Showcase. The show consisted of scenes from the musical Aladdin, as well as gymnastics, musical theater, hip-hop, and lyrical dance routines. The show was a combination of weeks of skill-building classes in acting and all dance styles. Parents gathered in the small theater on Wednesday to watch their children perform. The girls exuded excitement and joy, and the nahas among the mothers and grandmothers was palpable. The next day, the campers took their performance to Shoshanin, founded in memory of Eta Shoshana Bas Shal Aria. Shoshanin is a community organization providing social clubs and recreational activities for women ages 55+. plus. Based in the La Brea area, women come together to laugh, play, learn, and enjoy each other's company while having fun. Once a week, the ladies get a chance to dance with one of one of the A Time for Dance instructors. 
The campers drew beautiful pictures and presented them to each of the ladies. Shoshanim had a fantastic time witnessing the extraordinary performance by the girls from a time for dance camp. Their talents, skills, and radiant smiles left us truly amazed, said Director Freddy Yudlowski, LMSWCTP. The, uh, the, the choreography, singing, and acting were nothing short of exceptional, displaying the girls' dedication and investment in their craft. The entire performance was a masterpiece, leaving the audience in awe. We extend our heartfelt gratitude to the incomparable Mrs. Sheila Meyer, her exceptional staff, and the talented campers for gracing Shoshani with such a spectacular show. It was an unforgettable treat that brought joy and inspiration to all in attendance. We are truly fortunate to have experienced such a delightful showcase of young talent, and we eagerly look forward to any future opportunities to witness the magic of a time for dance camp once again. We ended the event by playing a fun game together. It was beautiful to watch the interaction between the girls and ladies and a special afternoon that the girls will remember forever. That was a time for a dance performing arts camp represented an Aladdin showcase. Next one is called Jewish Parents and Schools Fight uh, in Court to Protect Children with Disabilities. Over 100 Jewish parents and children gathered together last month to rally for equal opportunity for Jewish children with disabilities. The rally took place ahead of a hearing to fight a California law that excludes religious schools from receiving special education funding to serve children with disabilities. The case, Lopin v. California Department of Education, centers around Haya and Yanni Lopin, Fedora, Nick, and Morris Taxon, and Sarah and Ariel Perez, Orthodox Jewish parents who believe that their children with disabilities should be able to go to schools that provide an education that will provide their children the tools to flourish while also being in a Jewish environment, specifically at Shalhevet High School and Yavda Hebrew Academy, respectively. California politicians, however, have made this impossible by blocking federal and state special education funding from being used at private religious schools. The Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty, a partnership with Teach Coalition, a project of the Orthodox Union that advocates for government resources and funding for Jewish day schools, is supporting these parents and schools in their fight to stop California from denying education benefits to Jewish children with disabilities. Addressing the crowd, which included families, children with disabilities, and other parents in similar situation, Marriott Litwack, founder of Teach Coalition, said, All children with disabilities, regardless of their religious beliefs, should have the same opportunity to receive a quality education that meets their unique needs, and a parent should never have to compromise on how or where their child is educated. The Individuals with Disabilities Education Act is a federal law ensuring that all children with disabilities can receive an education that meets their unique needs. IDEA funds, uh, help, uh, funds help pay for the cost of staff training, special education programs, assisted, assistive technology, and other services. IDEA is designed to ensure all children can receive a free and appropriate education, including in the private schools where public schools cannot meet their needs. However, California politicians exclude religious schools and the religious families they want to serve from even applying to participate in the program. 
We want to educate our son in a safe, supportive learning environment that meets his unique needs and upholds our shared religious beliefs, said plaintiffs Haya and Yoni Lothman. Unfortunately, California is forcing our family to choose between raising our son in our faith tradition and, to provi and providing him the help he needs to reach his full potential. Immediately following the rally, supporters made their way to the hearing where they filled the courtroom. California's campaign against Jewish children with disabilities and the schools they want to attend is shameful and unconstitutional, said Laura Wolkslavas, counsel at Beckett. We argued in court today that the government cannot exclude religious people and schools from a public benefit simply because they are religious. A decision from the federal court is expected in the coming months. That was Jewish parents and schools fight in court to protect children with disabilities. And this one is called Sachs Evening Art Camp for Junior High Girls. Summer is amazing, but summer nights can be challenging for from teens. Those relaxed late nights mean so much extra time. In a world where the go-to is sadly an electronic device, Mrs. Sachs and Creative Exploring provides a much-needed alternative, a kosher creative environment with equal amounts of structured guidance and an opportunity for independent exploration as well. All you need to do is show up. Based on the art room at Yeshiva or Eliyahu, Mrs. Sachs's evening art camp ran three times a week for two-hour sessions. The campers ranged in age from 6th graders to ninth graders from a variety of schools around L.A. and the Valley. The art projects range from philosophical self-expression and investigation to new materials, challenge yourself and grow to easy and fun pleasure in the making kind of projects. Each new project was presented at the beginning of the evening with guidelines to move forward, suggesting on how to ensure success, discussion and examples. The remainder of the time was handed over to the campers with additional comments and, and guidance as requested. Music, snacks, conversation, the evening creative journey began with each camper flexing their visual art muscles and importantly, appreciating the creative, creative journey for what it is, a journey. With ups and downs, rights and lefts, getting lost and discovering new delights, all in all, a summer night well spent. <clears throat> that was Sack's evening art camp for junior high girls. And this next one is called Tyler Hero and a big, a big Baby Davis Visit Yavnes Camp Extreme. Campers at Camp Extreme could not contain their excitement when Tyler Hero and Glenn Big Baby Davis walked into their gym. Their cheers and screams could be heard all over the campus. Tyler Hero, a young budding superstar and fan favorite with the Miami Heat, spoke to the campers about hard work and being a good team player. Campers got to ask questions, take pictures, and have Tyler sign basketball cards, jerseys, and basketballs. Glenn Big Baby Davis, an NBA champion with the Boston Celtics, spoke to the campers about listening to their coaches, displaying proper sportsmanship, and exercising daily. A towering figure at 6'9 and almost 300 pounds, Big Baby was friendly and playful with the campers. On the way out, he stopped by the kitchen and participated in the challah baking process for Shabbos. Both Tyler Hero and Big Baby were so impressed with the direct errands of our campers and the kiddush Hashem they made. Thank you, Tyler and Big Baby, for coming to Camp Extreme. 
That was Tyler Hero and Big Baby Davis visit Yavna's Camp Extreme. And this last one is called 7th Annual Community Wide Ladies Yom E. Yon Community Event. Bir HaMitzarim and Tisha Be'av. On Monday, July 24, 2023, over 100 women gathered together for a special Yom E. Yon to prepare for Tisha Be'av. Organized by Nashe L.A. and co-hosted by The Lighthouse, women of all ages and stages enjoyed four unique speakers. Mrs. Sherry Friedman, Kala t- uh, teacher and mentor, spoke with Simcha on how to achieve true Simcha. Next, psychologist rabbi Dr. Baruch Amiri gave a novel lecture entitled Afar Kamsa had a psychologist which taught foundational principles of a modern form of psychological treatment called DBT. Rabbi Dr. Amari noted that much of the much of the kohoma of modern psychology is actually already found in the Torah itself. The audience joined in a worksheet and practiced as a psychologist would entreating Bar Kamsa prior to the well-known events that led to the destruction of the base Hamikdash. Following a delicious dairy and parib lunch, Rabbi Dub Brizak spoke about how to come alive with Emuna, sharing powerful stories of Emuna and reminding us that we must thank Hashem even for our troubles. Rabbi Brizak, noted author, lecturer, consultant, and educator, explained to the audience that Beis HaMikdash is still alive and we mourn it as Yaakov Avino mourned Yosef HaSadik was alive throughout the rest of his life for many years. Finally, Rabbi Dovid Horowitz, Rav of Makura Haheim in Tarzana and Rebbe of BYLA, closed the day's inspiration with this shura entitled Building Ourselves with Simcha to Rebuild the Base HaMikdash, emphasizing the importance of being Samik Helko in our daily lives. It was really beautiful to have a space set in the calendar for women to learn and be inspired and bring it back into our homes. Loved it, shared Reina Mavashev. That was 7th Annual Community-Wide Ladies Yom Eyon Community Event, Bin Hamid Sarim and Tisha Be'av. Those are all from the Around the Community section and all author unknown. And those are all, and they're all from the Jewish home August 9 through the 23rd, 2023, Volume 1, Number 22, your favorite bi-weekly family read. We now turn to some articles from the Jewish Journal for August 18 to the 24th, 2023. And from the My Turn section, this is called I Sort of Did It by Mark Schiff. It has taken over 60 years, but I finally mustered the courage and did it. I spent almost a lifetime watching other people do it and wishing I could be like them, but wishing to be someone else is generally not a good thing. I learned that Moses, I learned that God wants us to be ourselves, not another Moses. I said to my wife, I'm about to do something I wanted to do forever. Without even asking, she said, do it. That's trust. But being about to do something is still not the same as actually doing it. We've all been some we've all seen someone balancing on the tip of a diving board and then climbing back down. Come on, Mark, what the hell did you do? I feel a slightly ashamed because many of you will think it's not a biggie. 
But have you ever wanted to do something forever and not done it? Courage is a very odd thing. In some areas, I have tremendous courage, and in others, I have zilch. For me, each day, my courage buckets need to be refilled. I had been doing push-ups for months. Then one day, I lost the courage to continue. I thought and believed the idea that I didn't have the strength. Not the slightest bit true. I had more than enough strength, yet I went weeks without doing a single push-up. Remember the courage it took to, to ask someone out on a date? then rebuilding that courage to do it again after being turned down? One explanation of courage is the ability to do something that frightens you, and that's me. I can't tell you how many panic attacks I've had before shows and performed despite my fear. I have done so many things in life with courage that I never knew I had. But this thing was different. When I was very young, my mother frightened me about doing this thing, and I remained frightened for 60 plus years. Writing two books was less frightening than doing this. I have been aware of this fear forever. Being aware of something is a start, but not the solution. Before I tell you what it is, let me give you a few hints. Chefs do it, ice, ice cream truck drivers, marines, pilgrims in Islam, and the Shinto religion of Japan all do it. Coal miners never do it. New Yorkers that ride the subway sh never should. If you still haven't guessed, I bought white pants, and I mean white. My heart just raced while writing those words. When I was a child, I wore white shirts, white socks, white t-shirts, and uh, white briefs, but I never wore white pants. I always wanted white pants, but my mother being pers my personal shopper would never buy them for me, except for a protective cup for sports. I don't remember my father ever buying me any form of apparel. The mere thought of me in white pants gave my mother Ajita, A-G-I-T-A. Ajita is an Italian word even Yiddish speakers use. You're a slob, you'll ruin them, learn to use a napkin, and I'll get you white pants. She was right. I never did learn how to use a napkin. Her words scared me. Every time I'd see someone with white jeans, cords, or khakis, I'd think, Are they crazy? Where is their mother? Suppose they stain them. So now you know. I ordered a pair of white pants on Amazon. White pants are one of the great fifth magnets of all time, and I bought a pair. Coming home, I found a soft package on my doorstep. I took it to the dining room table and tore into it, practically ripping it open with my white teeth. And there they were, the whitest pants you've ever seen. I might even call them blinding white. I put them on faster than a 12-year-old getting into a bathing suit. Then I ran to a full-length mirror and looked at them on me. I knew the second I saw them on that they did not fit and that I needed to return them. I carefully took them off and put them back in the plastic bag so they wouldn't get dirty. Will I reorder a new pair? Stay tuned. That was I Sort of Did It by Mark Schiff from the My Turn section. Mark Schiff is a comedian, actor, and writer and host of the You Don't Know Schiff podcast. His new book is Why Not? Lessons on Comedy, Courage, and Chutzpah. This is also from the My Turn section. Managing Emotional Pain Through Acceptance by Judy Groon. Third in a series about Jewish mindfulness. For a long time, I have disdained the way our culture seems to encourage us to marinate in our emotions and even flaunt them. It's normal for people to refer to themselves as survivors of relationships they call abusive or dysfunctional, and of physical or emotional <coughs> experiences they can tra 
they call traumatic. Many experiences and relationships truly are abusive, dysfunctional, and traumatic, but they are frequently used to cover such a broad swath of experiences that the meaning of these powerful words become trivialized. Dr. Edith Egger, a Holocaust survivor and PTSD expert, wrote in her extraordinary book, The Choice, that there is no hierarchy of pain, meaning that everyone's pain is significant and must be respected. I understand this and would never disagree with a woman of her professional stature and personal history, but it's hard to deny that a victim mentally has become commonplace. How can you build a forward-looking optimistic life when you remain fixated on the past? Jewish mindfulness has made me temper my reproachful attitude toward those who cling to their pain and let it define them. I have come to understand that when this happens, it may be because the real pain, at whatever level it was experienced, was never processed in a healthy way. Judaism predated the mindfulness movement by a few thousand years, but both teach a restorative path that encourages emotional pain to lift naturally. In Exodus 6, 5-9, God tells Moses, I have now heard the moaning of the Israelites because the Egyptians are holding them in bondage. God is validating the pain of his people. But when Moses promises that God would lead them out of bondage, the people do not believe him because of their emotional exhaustion. This concern nefesh, or constriction of the spirit, literally leaves them short of breath, a reminder of how mindful breathing can be medicinal during acute stress. Accepting pain is also a critical step. Both mindfulness-based stress reduction as well as dialectical behavioral therapy uh, teach, it, teach that thoughts create emotions. At first, this sounds confusing. Are they not the same thing? In fact, thoughts have words, while emotions are simply feelings. Learning to control our thoughts can help us learn to control and manage our emotions. This isn't easy, and it takes a great deal of practice. For example, when I'm upset, I will only inflame my emotions by allowing my thoughts to judge them. What's wrong with me that I'm getting upset over this? Why does this person always have to frustrate me this way? I bet other people don't have this problem as often as I do. Mindfulness, DBT, and similar psychological philosophies encourage us to simply feel that pain. Don't fight it. Don't analyze it. Just let it flow and let it go, as my mindfulness course leader, Rabbi Dove Bear Cohen, often says. Pain and negative emotions have their uses in the short term. Don't be upset that you're upset or feel frustrated that you're frustrated. Pain is pain, but pain plus resistance is suffering. And a close friend of mine who has walked this walk, said a, said a close friend of mine who has walked this walk. In addition to not judging our emotions, these three mindfulness practices can be extremely effective in managing negative or painful feelings. One, sit with that feeling. I know a person whose therapist told him to bring a chair outside and invite his pain to sit alongside him. Acknowledging the reality of the pain will ease its grip. Two, put it in perspective. Know that there is a time and place for feeling pain, but that it's not going to hijack the rest of your life either. It may not even hijack the rest of your week or even your day. Three, find the purpose. Pain is here to teach us something and help us grow. It's, it's up to us to find, find out how to use the pain for personal growth or to help others.
I discussed the topic with one of my sons, Rabbi Noach Gruen, a day school uh, rev in Norfolk, Virginia. He pointed out to me that the Jewish model for Avelis, or mourning, provides the idea of paradigm for dealing with painful emotions. When we lose a close relative, we sit Shiva, seven days of literally sitting with our grief. We don't run away or distract ourselves from our pain. We need to feel it and talk about our loss when it is fresh and experienced most acutely. But Shiva ends. We get up and are escorted outside by friends. It's time to re-engage with life. Shiva is followed by Shloshim, the first month after a loss. In the remaining 11 months of the year, the restrictions of mourning are gently lifted each month as we navigate away from our most intense grief while still feeling mindful of our loss. Sometimes well-meaning but misguided people say hurtful things to someone in pain, such as, this will be for the good, or God knows what he's doing. The sages of Perkei Avot know better. Do not try to pacify your friends in this hour of anger, nor comfort a person when their dead is laying before them, Avot chapter 4. At times like these, only quiet empathy can offer whatever comfort <clears throat> is possible. Uh, during, the, during the last few weeks, I was tested by very strong and negative emotions stemming from a professional defeat. This disappointment stung so badly that despite my new understanding of sitting with pain to let it go, I felt rebellious. I would take my sweet time wallowing in resentment and misery. After all, I earned it. But the next day, while discussing the situation with a colleague, I began to recover rapidly. Given how intensely I had suffered the day before, I surprised myself by quickly losing interest in my self-righteous peak. I considered what I learned, what, I, what could I learn from the situation, and felt ready to move on. Was this mindfulness at work, or my life experience and Jewish wisdom helping me rise above it? I assume it was both, and I'm grateful that I proved stronger than my peak. Mindfulness helps us manage difficult emotions. But what about helping us maximize positive, happy ones? In the next column, I'll look at how to, how mindfulness, mindful practices can optimize even our happy thoughts. That was Managing Emotional Pain Through Acceptance by Judy Grun from the My Turn section. Judy Grun is the author of several books, including The Skeptic and the Rabbi, Falling in Love with Faith. Her next book, Bylines and Blessings, will be published in February 2024. All right, and also from the My Turn section, this is called Mother-Son Bonding Over Diamonds in Antwerp by Audrey Jacobs. My 24-year-old son Gabriel lives 5,663 away in Brussels, Belgium, 5,662 5 miles too far for a Jewish mother. Fortunately, I visited him this summer. Sadly, Rabbi Zevi and Sarah Ides who hosted Gabriel every Friday night for Shabbat dinner, were out of town. But Gabriel knows when I travel, I want to connect with my tribe and explore the local history of the Jewish people. Brussels is not very Jewish, but nearby Antwerp has 15,000 Hasidic Jews who live and dominate the diamond industry. This Flemish city is a trading center for 85% of the world's rough diamonds and around 50% of the globe's uh, Cut Diamonds Before the Netflix series Rough Diamonds, I knew the Jewish diamond trade in Antwerp went back to the 15th century, 
when Jews expelled from Spain and Portugal settled in what is now Belgium. Antwerp's Jewish population grew as Jews fled persecution in Eastern Europe. Antwerp was home to many Jews who survived the Holocaust because they sewed diamonds in, into their clothes. It's one reason why the city has one of the highest concentrations of Holocaust survivors and their descendants. Another reason is after World War II, the city's mayor encouraged Jews to return to Antwerp to work again in the diamond trade. I wanted to find an Antwerp guide whose family had lived in the region for decades and was a multi-generational diamond trader. Searching on Airbnb experiences, we were lucky to find Henri Cassie, a third-generation diamond trader with a BA in history who offers private tours. We met Henri outside the Astoria Hotel and walked a short block to the Diamond Center. With the rise in anti-Semitism, not knowing if it was safe to expose he's Jewish, he wore a New York Yankees baseball cap to hide his kippah and dressed in a, mo in a modern style. No exposed payer at sitzit. Before we began, I played Jewish geography so he knew we were Jewish. He smiled when he learned he knew Gabriel's rabbi in Brussels. In typical Jewish fashion, this was not a knowledgeable tour guide telling stories and the tourists listened politely. Gabriel and I had separately done research and peppered Andre with constant questions and commentary. Gabriel, the scientist, researched how diamonds were created, sourced, valued, and cut. Me, the economist, was fascinated by how business was done and the global threats and opportunities in the industry. I was curious how a $50 billion industry spanned only one nondescript block in the heart of Antwerp. Because it is Henri's passion to be an ambassador for the trade, we learn no other diamond trader does what he does, take you into his office and allow you to handle both rough and polished diamonds. As history and technology geeks, we also loved seeing the evolution of tools from centuries ago to navigating the online trading platforms and AI, artificial intelligence tools, that have transformed the industry. What we saw was mind-blowing, and of course, all the technological innovations come out of Israel. We learned Henri and his father's business is world-renowned for colored enhanced diamonds. For someone who's never liked diamonds because I love bold, deep colors, I fell in love with these diamonds. His family has perfected a specialized procedure of iconic beams and heat tre uh, treatment to transform natural diamonds into permanent shades of blue, yellow, pink, green, cognac, and my favorite, turquoise. Gabriel said when he finds his Jewish bride, he'll buy the diamond from Andre. If I'm lucky enough to get married again, I hope my beloved will get one of his rings with a deep, with a single deep turquoise diamond floating in a titanium band. Before we went into Andre's office, we gave our passports and fingerprints to the guards, and then Andre took us into the magnific magnificent trading hall, which is featured in rough diamonds. After centuries of business, it's still the center of Antwerp's trade in rough and polished diamonds. But to do business there, you must be an approved member of the Diamond Bourse, B-O-U-R-S-E. The Bourse was founded in 1904 by Antwerp diamond merchants who wanted to move their diamond dealing from the Petit Duc Café to a more structured and secure place of business than trading diamonds in a public cafe. 
To join the force, there's an in-person interview where you're grilled on who you know and what kind of deals you've done. Then your photo and name are posted on a bulletin board in the Grand Hall for three months. People who pass through can comment on dealings with you. If you pass the court of public opinion, followed by a criminal background check, then you're admitted to this prestigious group. Once you're in and maintain good status, it enables you to go to any diamond trading center in the world. However, if you screw over another member, an independent court called the Arbit Arbitrage acts like a Beit Din, Jewish religious court, to rule on the case. If you lose, you're expelled from the diamond force globally, and your name, picture, country of origin crime will be posted on the Great House Bulletin Board so traders will know not to do business with you. Outside the hall, the industry has changed dramatically because of three elements, technology, lab-grown diamonds, and low global labor costs. Henri showed us all the new technology and walked us through how the internet has transformed how the diamond business works. Because of sophisticated 3D visual technology, diamonds are not traded in person, but online, putting brokers out of business. Israeli company Sarin has reimagined the diamond industry using AI to disrupt every aspect of how to cut a rough diamond to accurately assessing the four C's, cut, clarity, carrot, and color. To address the issue of fake diamonds, dealers use the Israeli technology OGI system, which instantly checks if a diamond is real or lab-grown. Because of the low cost of labor, India has become Antwerp's major competitor as a diamond center. Henri said that the Belgium government is sensitive to the issue and in 2017 issued, enacted a carrot tax, which aids registered uh, registered diamond traders by removing the complexity of the profit-based tax system. The traders are no longer taxed on profits, but on a percentage of their overall turnover. With all the AI disruption and global competition, Andre taught us the most important aspect of a business that can never be disrupted is trust between humans. As Jews, we're not only a religion, we're also a family. It makes sense why Jews have dominated the diamond trade in this region for centuries. You trust your family, but this family is growing and blending. With the innovations in the industry, it's easier for anyone to learn the trade. Andre, being a great teacher, is starting a private diamond business school where pupils can learn the trade in a one to two week intense course. Gabriel smiled at me and shook his shoulders. Another career path he could pursue? Our tour with Andre was, was by far the most fascinating experience of this trip and when I felt closest to my son. Together, we studied and learned. It felt like we were Hevruta study partners coming to meet with the rabbi. Sitting side by side, looking at rough and polished diamonds through a jeweler's loop was one of those moments as a parent you pray for, making a precious memory. That was mother-son bonding over diamonds in Antwerp by Audrey Jacobs from the My Turn section. Audrey Jacobs is a financial advisor and has three sons. We now move on to the Nation World Briefs section. And uh, we start off with this one, Jewish group Jewish groups launch relief effort for Maui as islands Jews are among the evacuated. But Ron Campius, Jewish Telegraphic Agency. 
Jewish groups in the United States and in Hawaii are launching relief efforts following the devastation caused by wildfires that have killed more than 50 people so far. The wildfires have all but destroyed the town of Lahaina on the island of Maui, which Hawaii's Jewish governor, Josh Green, touted on August 10 with Brian Schatz, the state's Jewish senator. What we saw today was likely the largest natural disaster in Hawaii state history, Green said in a statement. The fires have had consequences for Hawaiians well beyond the fire zone. It's with much gratitude and humility to share that the Jewish congregation of Maui and its grounds are safe, the non-denominational synagogue wrote in its, on its website. However, many in our community have lost their homes, businesses, and also a loved one from the devastation of the fires. There are 2,000 to 3,000 Jews in Maui, a Jewish philanthropy reported, with two synagogues, the Jewish congregation of Maui, which was not in the evacuation zone, and Habada of Maui, which was. The rabbis of both synagogues told a Jewish philanthropy and the forward that congregants are among those uh, evacuated. Rabbi Mendy Krasjansky, the Chabad rabbi, told the forward that volunteers were standing by to reach the synagogue and rescue Torah scrolls if needed. The Jewish Federations of North America on August 10 launched a Hawaii wildfire fund to bring the evacuees to, uh, toiletries, first aid kits, and non-perishable foods, baby supplies, and other supplies. That was Jewish Group's launch relief effort from Maui as Island's Jews are among the evacuated by Ron Campius, Jewish Telegraphic Agency. This next one is called OC Synagogue Evacuated Due to Fake Bomb Threat by Aaron Bandler. A synagogue in the Orange County city of Fullerton was evacuated on August 12th due to a fake bomb threat. City News Service reported that Fullerton police had been notified by the Los Angeles Police Department that a bomb was going to explode in Temple Beth Tikva. After police evacuated the temple, no explosive device was found. Fullerton police also said that the synagogue received a call from a man that was certainly anti-Semitic in nature, but did not rise to the point of being criminal in nature. Also on August 12th, the Anti-Defamation League issued a statement saying that at least 26 synagogues and two ADL offices have been targeted by online trolls who swat and call in fake bomb threats targeting synagogues these past four weekends. The ADL also noted that the trolls appear to be targeting synagogues that livestream their services. According to CNS, Temple Beth Tikva services on August 12th were being livestreamed on Facebook. That was OC Synagogue evacuated due to fake bomb threat by Aaron Bandler. This last one is Netanyahu Levin reportedly seeking to halt judicial reform from the Jewish News Syndicate. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and Justice Minister Yariv Levin have agreed to freeze their government's judicial reform program for 12 months, Israel Hayom reported on August 15, citing anonymous coalition officials. Netanyahu and Levin have asked for the blessing of Israeli President Isaac Herzog, the article said, with the two politicians hoping that formalizing the pause will contain the anti-government protests. The Likud party denies the reports, noted Israel Hayom. All the coalition heads are working in full cooperation to pass both the conscription law and the legal reform, the ruling party said in a statement one that the ultra-Orthodox ultra United Torah Judaism Party also signed. 
Earlier on, August 15, uh, Hebrew media reported that Netanyahu's Haredi, or ultra-Orthodox coalition partners, demanded that the entire reform be halted indefinitely to allow for the passing of a law that would give Haredim a near-total exemption from military service. Netanyahu has said that his government will seek an, an agreement with the opposition on the rest of the judicial reform package during the Knesset summer recess, which started two weeks ago. In July, Likud rejected a demand by the opposition to freeze all judicial reform legislation until 2025. That was Netanyahu Levin reportedly seeking to halt judicial reform from the Jewish News Syndicate, and those are articles from the Nation World's Brief section. And here is another article from the My Turn section. This is called, Why Would Duke Publish a Book Full of Malicious, Unproven Allegations Against Israel? by Carrie Nelson. Jasbir Puar, the well-known Rutgers University professor of women's studies, has a right to her opinion. But on that, I have no disagreement. But there was no reason for Duke University Press to publish her book, The Right to Maim, in 2017, given its series of malicious, unproven allegations against the state of Israel. According to Puar, Israelis prefer to maim and disable Palestinians rather than kill them. Israelis ship just enough food to Palestinian children to keep them alive but stunt their growth. She claims that Israelis harvest major organs from Palestinian bodies and contribute them to the international trade in body parts. No matter that, no one has ever documented an Israeli policy of maiming Palestinians. The claim is obscene. No matter that UNICEF, the World Health Organization, and the Palestinian Authority itself keep statistics that prove childhood stunting is not a documented problem in either Gaza or the West Bank. No matter that Puar can cite no medical studies to support her slander, Duke declared it was all just a matter of opinion. The stunting accusation is a pure Puar invention. With the organ harvesting fantasy, Puar replaces research with rumor mongering. Yes, like several U.S. states, an Israeli morgue assumed it had consent to have to harvest corneas and skin from both Jewish and Arab bodies, therefore providing skin grafts for burn victims. Major organs were trafficked only in anti-Semitic conspiracies, Puars among them. A university press is supposed to make certain its author's allegations are documented with evidence. This does not seem to be the case with the right to maim. Why not? It demonized Israel. The right to maim received an award from the venomously anti-Semitic National Women's Studies Association. Puar was promoted at Rutgers and made head of her graduate program. Now Puar is in the news again because Princeton University is offering an anti-Zionist course that includes the right to maim on its reading list. The course presents itself as a decolonizing process that enables students to repoliticize personal trauma as it intersects with global legacies of violence, war, racism, slavery, patriarchy, colonialism, orientalism, homophobia, ab ableism, capitalism, and extravism. Whatever you see these terms, whenever you see these terms jammed together, you know you are in the presence of a political agenda, and more than that, a course of ideological indoctrination. Yes, once Princeton approved the course, academic freedom gave the instructor. Satiel Larson, the right to assign Puar's book. 
but that does not mean Princeton was exercising good judgment any more than Duke University Press fulfilled its professional responsibilities. At the very least, Princeton now owes its students the opportunity to take a course that does not urge decolonizing the Jewish state. Anti-Zionism has proven to be a socially acceptable cover for anti-Semitism. Now the politicized wing of the humanities and social sciences has come up with yet another euphemism for anti-Semitism. Decolonization. It turns anti-Zionism into what purports to be a universal political concept. But Israel was never anyone's colony. India was, but not Israel. Palestine will be free from the river to the sea is the familiar slogan of the movement to decolonize Israel by eliminating it. Larson's incoherent sequence of terms concludes with extravism, extractivism, which began its life as a practical concept, referring often to the principle guiding the colonial extraction of raw materials and other resources from subject states. But it has overgrown its meaning to encompass uh, any kind of extraction, labor, data, even culture. Decolonization began its life describing the real post-World War II movement by which European countries gave up their power over their colonies and new nations were formed in their place. But when the term migrated to Israel, it became an anti-Zionist slander, a slander that was a Roman colony years ago, but has since been reestablished as the Jewish homeland it was before the Roman legions arrived. When you also add slavery, patriarchy, colonialism, orientalism, homophobia, Ab ableism, capitalism to the mix, as Larson does, declaring all these as things your course will righteously oppose, you turn critical and political theory into hogwash. There are passages in Puar's book that unfortunately read this way as well. But of course she was writing a book, not a mere course description, so she can expand the list into incoherent semi-illiterate paragraphs and chapters. Puar's main arguments are loathsome, but her prose is simply gibberish. Pouvoir's book and Larson's chorus apparently share more than anti-Zionism. They also share their dedication to a degraded version of humanistic study, one that replaces evidence with political buzzwords. You recite the litany of sacred terms and therefore prove your commitment and your worth. There was a time when a serious study of decolonization alone merited a book or a course. Now you have to pack in patriarchy, homophobia, and so forth. Is there a silver lining in all of this? Perhaps. If anti-Semitism is packed together with all these other concepts, it will lose its meaning along with the others. The whole edifice should collapse with only the smallest encouragement from the rest of us. If not, it proves itself, however hateful, a fool's errand to boot. That was Why Would Duke Publish a Book Full of Malicious, Unproven Allegations Against Israel by Kerry Nelson from the My Turn section. Kerry Nelson's Israel Denial, Indiana, includes a detailed chapter on Pouar, his hate speech and academic freedom. Academic Studies Press uh, uh, Publishing is forthcoming. All right, and now we go on to Rossner's Domain from Israel. This is called New Military, New Country by Shamil Rosner. The agenda for the winter session of Israel's Knesset can be described in all kinds of ways, all connected to the ultra-Orthodox. One way, passing a law that would exempt the ultra-Orthodox from army uh, conscription for good. Another, 
passing a law that will allow for more integration of ultra-Orthodox Israelis in the labor market. Another, a move that would finally end a crisis that has no solution. And finally, a move that will mark the beginning of the end of Israel's People's Army. The last option, the fourth, is the most dramatic, and it is also the least talked about. Many Israelis believe that all Israelis must share the burden of military service. Many of them are angry at any plan that would exempt the ultra-Orthodox forever. Many are also worried because half of all ultra-Orthodox men don't work. Some of them believe that it is more important for Israel than the ultra-Orthodox work than they enlist. And we are all tired of the never-ending debate about drafting the ultra-Orthodox. They tell us in surveys that they won't enlist anyway, so maybe it's time to end this charade once and for all. Let's pass a new law and move on. Few Israelis, too few, take the fourth option into account. But it's a possibility that some experts believe is a certainty. The law that the government is slated to pass in October would be a watershed beyond which the IDF would no longer be what it was. It would no longer be a people's army. Not in principle because there is a law that exempts Israelis from conscription, and not in fact because other Israelis will decide that if it is, there is an exemption, they too deserve it. The People's Army brand has a practical function. It allows the idea to recruit everyone, including the best and the brightest, to fill the ranks of the regulars and the reserves to give Israelis a feeling of binding partnership. But the People's Army brand has also a symbolic role. It is an essential part of Israel's identity, a core feature of its character. If Israel loses the IDF as met as a people's army, this will have a practical and symbolic consequences. Security experts will have to deal with the practical consequences. What new model to adopt how to maintain Israel's security in a new era? Some of them say that there is no such possibility. This is a scary statement, but it is not necessarily relevant. If the IDF must change, they'd still have to sit down and devise a way to keep us all secure. They will have to square the circle, or whatever cliché you choose, and make Israel strong enough with an idea that is no longer the people's army. Alongside this practical challenge, there is also a symbolic challenge. It is very difficult to imagine the state of Israel without the idea as a central, dominant, unifying symbol. It is very difficult to imagine Israel without the ethos of the people's army. But you can try to do it by looking at the many countries where there is no people's army. These are countries where the army is sometimes revered and sometimes less so. These are countries where a large part of the population are alienated from the military, do not know much about it, do not understand it. In those countries, the military is still an institution with an important role, like the Ministry of the Interior or the Parks Authority or the police. In fact, the police is a good example with which to imagine the Israel of the future. If the IDF is no longer the people's army, it will be more like the police. That is, an institution that we all understand is important and that we are all grateful to those who work in it, but it is not a unique Israeli symbol. No one says about the policemen that they are our children. We only say such thing about the soldiers. In polls that test approval and trust, the IDF is always at the top. The police is not. So ahead of the winter session of the Knesset, 
one should take into account the possibility that this is exactly the move the government is leading to. And of course, its ministers will say, no, that's not true. What you say is unthinkable. And yet there's no other way to interpret a blanket exemption for a rapidly growing population. It might possible have to do have, it might possible have it might possible to have a military base on 80% of the population and can still call it a people's army and maybe 70 or even 60%. But at a certain point 50 to 40%, the house of cards will collapse. There is no people's army when so many Israelis are exempt from it, both practically and in principle. An IDF that is not the people's army will be a completely different institution. And Israel, whose military is not a people's army, will be a completely different Israel. There was New Military, New Country by Shemuel Rosner. And also from the same section, Rosner's Domain from Israel, this is called Something I Wrote in Hebrew, also by Shemuel Rosner. Connect the dots and discover a pattern. The government has a pattern. It has a unique character. Our current government is the we know better government. By accepting this theme as the defining theme of the government, suddenly everything seems clear. Finance Minister Bezalel Smotrich thinks he knows better than the Shin Bet what will or will not cause the radicalization of Arab students. Justice Minister Yariv Levin thinks that politicians know better than judges how to handle citizens' rights. M.K. Simcha Rothman believes that he is the outmost expert on constitutional law. M.K. Moshe Gaffney knows better than the Bank of Israel how to manage the interest rate. Minister Etmar Ben-Givur knows better than the police how to tame cr uh, crime violence. This is a fascinating phenomenon, which mixes arrogance, we won the elections, a sign that we are smarter, with feelings of inferiority, so we don't know math or English, so what? That's something I wrote in Hebrew. This is called a week's numbers. This is one reason why Haredi Israels can't quite communicate with their secular fellow citizens. It's more difficult to study Torah than to serve in the IDF. Haredi Israelis' response, 25% agree, 34% somewhat agree, 23% disagree, 12% it's an outrageous claim, 6% don't know. That's a week's numbers, and this is a reader's response. Rafi Schweig asks, Would most Israelis still prefer Trump over Biden in the next election? My response, The understanding between the U.S. and Iran from last week makes this quite likely. And that's a reader's response, and those are all from Rosner's Domain from Israel by Shemuel Rosner. Shemuel Rosner is the senior political editor. For more analysis of Israeli and international politics, visit Rosner's Domain at jewishjournal.com slash Rosner's Domain. All right, and now we go on to this thing, We All Make Mistakes, a poem for Parsha Shoftim by Rick Lubert. When a man goes with his fellow into the forest to chop wood, and his hand swings the axe to cut down the tree, and the iron flies off the handle, and it reaches his fellow, and he dies, he shall flee to one of these cities and live. Deuteronomy 19.5 We all make mistakes. We've stepped out of the curb without having looked both ways and almost gotten our leg driven off. We've clicked send on an email pr uh, before properly vetting all the red underlined words sending a mishmash of English to an unsuspecting email reader. 
I'm pretty sure I've brought home a cantaloupe when a honeydew was what they asked for. Though to be fair, the list just said melon. My wife has no memory of this, but we both know I've come home with the wrong thing, even if it wasn't melon. I don't think I've chopped wood since Boy Scouts camp in the Adirondack Mountains in the middle of the 80s, so I personally have never had an axe handle fly off and unintentionally kill someone else. Though I did leave fishing the fishing pole by the lake instead of putting it away, which my scoutmaster was disappointed with, and then suggested they should take my fishing merit badge away. We all missed the mark. This is half the reason Australia was invented. A separate place for mistake makers to go to think about what we what they've done. A kindness almost compared to the harshest consequences. Almost every transgression back in the days of Moses led to a smiting. It's nice that they built in our very own Australia for the accidental murderers to go. This is when we all this is when we set all this up. This is when all the laws were written down. That was We All Make Mistakes, a poem for Parsha Shoptim by Rick Lupert. Rick Lupert, a poet, song leader, and graphic designer, is the author of 27 books, including God Wrestler, a poem for every Torah portion. Now let's go to this little section, the Sephardic Torah section by Rabbi Daniel Bauskila, Women's Prayer Group's Rabbi Yosef Mesas. It is commonly believed that Halakil Halakali-based women's prayer groups originated in contemporary circles of the progressive wing of modern orthodoxy. Think again. In his book, Nahalat Avot, Rabbi Yosef Mesas reveals that in certain ancient communities in Spain, there were pious religious women who conducted their own early morning prayer services. Born in Meknes, Morocco, Rabbi Mesas was one of the 20th century's outstanding Halakhic authorities. He served as the chief rabbi of Tlemcen, Algeria, and the chief rabbinic judge, Dayan, in Meknes. A prolific author of 48 rabbinic books, he was also a talented liturgical poet and artist whose drawings graced many pages of his books. In 1964, he made Aliyah, and in 1968 became the chief Sephardic rabbi of Haifa, a position he held until his passing in 1974. Nahalat Avot is an eight-volume collection of Rabbi Messas's sermons from his years at Meknes, Morocco, starting in 1943. Published in stages between 1971 and 87, Nahalat Avot is a treasury of Torah wisdom. Discussing the dictum that one should wake up early in the morning for prayers with the strength of a lion, Rabbi Messas quotes a poetic verse of, from the Torah that describes the Jewish nation. Lo! of people that rises like a lioness and leaps up like a lion, Numbers 23 and 24. Raji teaches that this verse is a metaphor for the Jewish people rising early to put on Talit and Teflin, read the Shema, and pray, says Rabbi Mesas. If so, why did the verse mention the female lioness before the male lion? Rabbi Mesas' answer to his thought-provoking question reveals a beautiful piece of Sephardic history. I saw written in a book that in certain communities in Spain, the learned and pure women would wake up very early in the morning and go to their own designated synagogues where they would conduct a prayer service. One of the women would lead a shil shilaha 
Desibar, designated prayer leader, and on the days of Torah reading, they would read from a Torah scroll. Some of the women wore tefillin, and all of them were wrapped in a talit. They conducted such services on weekdays, Shabbat, and holidays. Women are exempt from time-bound commandments, so these women voluntarily took up these obligations. After services, they went home to wake up their husbands and sons to go and pray. This is the lioness waking up before the lion. The women in Spain and Rabbi Yosef Mesas were years ahead of their time. Something for both Ashkenazim and Sephardim to think about. Shabbat Shalom. That was a Sephardic Torah by Rabbi Daniel Boskila, Women's Prayer Group's Rabbi Yosef Mesas. Rabbi Daniel Boskila is the director of the Sephardic Educational Center and the rabbi of the Westwood Village Synagogue. All right, here is another little section, the Bigel Torah from Rabbi Nicole Gusek from Tel Aviv. Our phenomenal tour guide, Yonid Schiller, explained that the crane is considered the official bird of, the, of Tel Aviv. It's a joke. The truth is that there are construction cranes wherever you look. This city is constantly in a state of building, rebuilding, renovating, and expanding. Founded in 1909, there were 66 families facing sand dunes and seemingly impossible terrain to build on or construct. And yet, two young children were given seashells with each family's name. The 66 families chose shells and divided Tel Aviv into individual plots of land, and the dreaming began. If you walk around Tel Aviv, you'll hear a plethora of languages, witness different cultures and religions, and realize that this special city has become a home to so many. As Yoni taught, Herzl's vision was this, a Zionist Jewish state for any Jew around the world. While Israel is certainly facing internal and external challenges and threats, walking around Tel Aviv gives me hope. Whether it was the Russian shopkeeper or Ethiopian waiter, each person made sure to both welcome me and explain how much they love Eretz Yisrael. I was quick to agree. In a few weeks, I'll be officiating at many weddings. It's the season. At the end of a wedding, we smash a glass to remind us of the destruction of the holy temples in Jerusalem. But when I hear the glass breaking, I'll be reminded that a piece of our heart breaks when we leave Israel. There is only one road to repair. Come back. Israel, the trout. I'll see you soon. Shabbat Shalom. That's a Bigel Torah from Rabbi Nicole Gosik from Tel Aviv. Rabbi Nicole Gosik is Senior Rabbi at Sinai Temple. All right, let's uh, conclude with uh, reading some ads from the Jewish Journal, August 18th to the 24th, 2023. Here's this one. American Committee for Shara Zedek Medical Center in Jerusalem, Innovative Medicine in the Heart of Jerusalem. In celebration of Israel's 75th year, you're invited to a special gala honoring Sam Yebri Esquire, with special guests, Honorary, Honorable Antonio Villaragosa, Ben Savage, David Suiza, and Avi Lieberman, members of the USC Marching Band. Host Committee, Honorable Lily and John Bose, Susan and Stephen Matloff, Emily and Nate Miller, Dr. Sharon Nazarian, Indri and Barak Ravid, Nava and Amite Razil, Chelsea and Matthew Shames, and Rabbi Zachary Shapiro and Honorable Ron Galperin. Thursday, September 7, 20, 2023, 5.30 p.m. 
Sephardic Temple, 10500 Wilshire Boulevard in LA. Catering by Pats. For further information, call 310-229-0915. Web, uh, email is westernregion at acsz.org. Here's one more. In politics, most pursue power. He pursued peace. Shimon Perez's influence and integrity were instrumental in the founding and preservation of Israel. A Netflix documentary, Never Stop Dreaming, The Life and Legacy of Shimon Perez, watch now on Netflix, on the Simon Weisenthal Center's two-time Academy Award-winning Moriah Films. And folks, it looks like we are just about to come to the end of another edition of Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. So for everything that is happening with us Jewish folk right here in the city, the state, the nation, Israel, and the world, find it all right here. Until next time, everybody, this is your reader and host, Mark Braun. Shalom and peace. <laughs>